Good morning, everyone. Man, aren't these, aren't those interns awesome? Like, don't they just make you smile? For those of you who, yeah, you can put your hands together. For those of you who came to 21 Days of Prayer, man, they're out bouncing around on the highway at 5 a.m. It was awesome. We're so glad you're at church today. For those of you sitting outside, good morning. For those of you watching from home, good morning. We love you and we miss you. For those of you in an extended season at home because of you or a loved one, um, if we can serve you in any way between now and when you're able to come back to church, please don't hesitate to let us know. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5 is where I want you to turn today, that first book in our New Testament. We're going to live here for more than a year in the book of Matthew. Hopefully we will wear the pages out before we are done learning who Jesus is in the book of Matthew, beginning a brand new series today called The Way of Jesus. And here's the reason we are in this series. Here's the premise of the entire series. I want to, as a follower of Jesus, I want to help you as followers of Jesus, learn the way of Jesus so we can live life like Jesus as followers of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think Christians should more and more be becoming like Jesus. Amen? That's the goal of this series, to help you as a follower of Jesus, learn the ways of Jesus so you can live your life like Jesus and become more like him. Because unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Turn to someone and say, Jesus. This series is about Jesus. Will Durant is a famous historian. He was a professor at Seton Hall in the early 1900s um, who was kind of a groundbreaker in the fields of philosophy in history. He wrote an 11-volume study on the history of civilization that won a Pulitzer Prize. Basically, he studied every civilization known to man, every world leader known to man, and brought them together into one story of humanity. And of course, as a part of this story, we read about Jesus. And here's what he says about Jesus. Jesus undoubtedly stands out above all others as having the most powerful and permanent influence on the thought of mankind. However, His teachings have not had a corresponding effect on man's actions. I don't think this is an accusation against the world or against high thinkers who have studied the life of Jesus. I think this is an accusation against his followers. I think it's an accusation against his church. I think it's an accusation against people who call themselves Christians. I think he's saying, as you study the history of the world, there's a whole lot of people who like to learn about Jesus, but they've not really become like Jesus. In our goal in this series, one more time, just so you can understand, our goal one more time is to learn the ways of Jesus, not so that we can know them as high thinkers, not so we can be intellectually influenced by them, but to learn the ways of Jesus so we can live life like Jesus as followers of Jesus. Don't you believe that's the goal of following Jesus? Amen? Like, that's the goal. Learn about Jesus so we can become like Jesus. As we set out in this series to do that, First thing I want you to learn today is really about your heart. Because if your heart is not open to hear the ways of Jesus, your life will never follow the ways of Jesus. So here's the goals as we dig into Matthew chapter 5 today. Number one, I want you to more clearly understand your perspective of Jesus because because there are two. We're going to see two different perspectives of why people listen to and learn about Jesus today. And I want you, before you leave, to know which group you fit in. And then my hope is, number two, you'll lean towards beginning a journey to become a disciple living in the way of Jesus. That's where we want to get to. It's easier, I think, to follow a list of things to do than a list of things to become. But Jesus in Matthew 5 doesn't say, if you want to become like me, you need to do these nine things. He says, if you want to become like me, you have to become these nine things. And becoming is harder than doing. It's a more difficult obedience 
but a more impactful life. Let me say it again. I wish Jesus started out by, here's how you follow Jesus, do these nine things. That would be easier than Jesus saying, here's how you follow me, become these nine things. It's a harder obedience to get there, but it's a more impactful life once we do get there. And that's where we want to try to get in this series. For those of you tracking with us on 21 days of prayer, today's day 22. I think it's your most important day. Because for you to cross the bridge from praying at church to becoming a person who lives with a culture of prayer, you got to learn to pray on your own when we don't have a service for you. So, man, I really want to challenge you. At some point today, go home, open up your prayer journal to pages 48 and 49, fill out all your prayer needs for the week, spend 30 minutes today talking to Jesus on your own, be a person of prayer, not a person that goes to church and prays every now and then. So make sure you spend time in your booklet moving towards beginning to develop a culture of prayer. Not tomorrow, but next Monday we'll be back together at 6 a.m. But this week's on you. Walk closely with Jesus. We're going to begin today in prayer, asking God to open our hearts and show us our perspective towards Jesus. Can you pray with me? Would you bow your heads here and at home, those of you sitting outside? Take a deep breath if you haven't done that yet today. And just whisper this prayer from your heart to heaven. Ask God, to speak to you today. God, that's our prayer that, you would, that you'd speak to us. Show us our perspective of Jesus. And then, Lord, if it's off at all, change our perspective of Jesus so that you may change our lives to be more like you. We love you. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Matthew chapter 5, these 12 verses will be where we will live for the next 10 weeks at our church. It says this in verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For the next 10 weeks, we will live in these 12 blessings with the hope that they sink so deeply into our soul that they literally change the genetic and DNA spiritual makeup of our life, that we at the end of 10 weeks are different people from the inside out. The spiritual DNA of our life changes, but we begin today just with the first two verses. We're going to look at verses one and two, and we're going to learn really four things. If you have a pen, I want you to circle four words. It says, now when Jesus, everybody say Jesus. Today's about Jesus. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Today we're going to talk about Jesus, circle that word. We're going to talk about the crowd, circle that word. We're going to talk about mountainside, circle that word. We're going to talk about disciples, you can circle that word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. One more time, say Jesus. Matthew tells us he, number one, is the king. He is the king. You say, like Elvis is the king? No, like Jesus is the king, like the king of the world. There are 39 books in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament in, uh, in our Bible. If there were to be a 40th, it would be Matthew. 
As a matter of fact, I kind of see Matthew as the 40th book of the Old Testament. There are three New Testament books that are written very specifically to the Jewish people. Matthew, Hebrews, and James. So if you said there are 39 books in the Old Testament, you could say Matthew would be number 40. You could say Hebrews is 41, James is 42, because Matthew is very specifically written to Jewish people in the first century. His book about Jesus, four men wrote books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew's is the one who solely focused on a Jewish people who knew the message of God from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Matthew was writing to Jewish people and he introduces to the Jewish people Jesus as the king. Say, who are the Jewish people? A small group of people living on a very small group of land who had big promises given to them by God. A small group of people living on a very small piece of land who had big promises given to them by God. They were given the spiritual forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were given the spiritual promises of blessing and purpose. They were given the spiritual covenants of the commandments at Mount Sinai. The Jewish people, small group of people living on a small section of land, and God had a huge purpose for them. He told them their purpose would be to connect the entire world to him when his king came and ruled his kingdom, the king of Israel ruling in the spiritual kingdom of Israel that would bless the entire world. They were waiting on that king and that kingdom. They had given that king a name in the Hebrew language. The word is Mashiach. When we transliterate it into the English language, we say Messiah. In the Greek language, the word Messiah is Christ. They had been waiting on the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, the king, to come rule his kingdom so that they could then help the entire world connect to the God of heaven. These Jewish people were waiting on this king, and there is no doubt in the world that Matthew is writing a book about Jesus who he would call the king. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here's how Matthew starts his book. As we ask the key question, who is Jesus? He's the king. Matthew begins his book this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus. He's the king. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. This is the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew said, this book is about Jesus. He is the king who will rule the kingdom, who will bless the world. It's how he starts his entire book. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, he says he's not only the king of Israel, Jesus is seen as a king by foreign dignitaries. When the magi from the east came to search for Jesus, they asked where the king of the Jews was born. So Matthew says Jesus the king is not just the king of the Jewish people. Foreign dignitaries sought him out as the king of Israel that had been promised from long ago. In Matthew chapter 3, he said he's not just Israel's king. Foreign dignitaries recognize him as king. He's God's king. He's the anointed son of God. When he was baptized, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Matthew said, you need to understand he's the Jews king. He's the world's king. He's God's king, which means as a spiritual king of the world, he is the spiritual enemy of Satan. So in Matthew 4, he presents this time of wilderness temptation with Satan because the promised king of Israel was promised to be the spiritual enemy of Satan. So in the first four chapters, Matthew has set the table that this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting on. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's God's king. He's the spiritual enemy of Satan. Matthew says the king has come. And by the time we get to Matthew 5, everyone is ready to hear from the king because you haven't heard much from him up to this point. In Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Jesus doesn't speak. In Matthew 3, he speaks one sentence. He tells John, you need to baptize me. John says, I can't baptize you. He said, you have to to fulfill righteousness. In Matthew chapter 4, he says three sentences to Satan as a result of his temptation in private conversation. 
He says one sentence to the disciples, Matthew's overarching call of Jesus to his disciples is, come fish for men. And then he preaches a one-line message. All we know about the king in his public message before Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, is Matthew four seventeen, where Jesus said this. This is the only message he's had before Matthew chapter 5. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus has only said six things, only one of them publicly. But boy, by Matthew chapter 5, holy cow, the stage has been set. By the time we get to Matthew 5, we have a long-promised and long-awaited king preaching about a long-awaited and much-needed kingdom. Matthew says, the king is here. And the king says, the kingdom is here. And by this point, everyone's saying, holy cow, if this is true, let's go. If this is true, let's go. They lived in such a broken, corrupt world. If the king and the kingdom were really here... Man, they wanted to know, so they flocked in Matthew chapter 5 to hear the message of the king. Let's think about it this way. In 2020, we need a righteous king to come figure this thing out, right? There's nothing in the history of American politics or prophecy that says one day a president will come, a ruler will come, who will finally eliminate evil, who will finally pay back all the wrong that's ever been done, who will finally bless the righteous. But if there was a prophecy that said that, And then someone showed up and said, I am that. In the year 2020, we would tune in, hopeful that it was true. The people of Israel were kind of in a 2020 existence that had been lasting for hundreds of years. And when Matthew said, the king is here, the Jewish people would have been been saying, man, let's hear what he has to say. And the crowd showed up. We meet the king, and then we meet the crowds who were coming. We meet the crowds who were coming. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. There were two crowds. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, that was the first group, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, that was the second group, came to him and he began to teach them. Now probably the most important thing you need to figure out today is which group you're in. Because there are always two groups attracted to the teaching of Jesus. There's the world and there's Jesus' followers. There's always two groups of people attracted to Jesus' teaching because of who he is, because of what he said, because of what he promises, because of how he lived. There's always two groups of people attracted to the the teachings of Jesus. There's the world at large, and then there's actually people who follow him. The question you need to ask is, am I part of the world who really likes the teachings of Jesus, love to learn about him, interested in what he has to say, or are you one of his disciples who actually follow those teachings? Like the historian said earlier, there's lots of people who have been impacted by the thoughts of Jesus. They just Their lives haven't been impacted in how they live their life. Which group are you in? You say, how can I know the answer to that question? Let's narrow it down a little bit more. First group we look at is the crowds. The crowds. Jesus went up on a mountainside and the crowds came to him. Now, to understand at a level that will help us empathize with the crowds coming to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to have to have a little bit of a a history lesson. But here's why this is important. It's important to understand enough to empathize with the crowd of people because that's the only way we're going to figure out, one, if we're like them, and two, who in our life is like them, so maybe we can learn how to communicate and minister well to them. Now, to do that, I'm going to have to get into my nerd zone a little bit and talk like through a lot of like details that nobody cares about, um, which, I, which I love to do. I wanted to be a history teacher before God called me to ministry. Danielle was reading an article the other day that she got halfway through, and she was like, this is just some nerd stuff about church history, but I think you'll love it. So she forwarded it to me like that. Like, I'm going to nerd out for just a minute. Um, 
Only four of the dates are real applicable to why you need to know all of the dates. Um, so if you want to phase out for two or three minutes, check email, check Twitter, you know, send a text or something, that's good. But in three minutes, come on back um, and I'll help you. We're, we're going to go back to the future a little bit to understand the crowds who were hearing Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. 2,100 years before Jesus came, a guy named Abraham, who was the forefather of the Jewish faith, received a call from God that he would receive, if he followed God, a land, and eventually a king would come from his family, his group of people, for whom and with whom they would bless the entire world. We read that in Genesis 12 and 17. You're going to have a people, you're going to have a land, you're going to have a king. The purpose of all of that is to use that land and use the king so a spiritual kingdom can rule the world. It took them 700 years to get the first part of that land. 1400 BC, a general named Joshua leads the people of Israel on a conquest of the promised land, what we now know as Israel or Palestine on a, on a map, and uh, they take over the promised land. So 700 years to get the land piece, and then another 350 years, 1050 BC, to get the king piece. 1050 BC is an important date to remember because this launches a sliver of hope in the history of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is united under a king for 120 years. Saul would rule for 40 years. David would rule for 40 years. Solomon would rule for 40 years. Um, This is the only time in that entire period where the Israelites had a land and a king like God promised Abraham. You say, well, what happened after 120 years? In 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel had a civil war and they divided between two. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah. And neither one of them stood very long. They were still in the land, but there was no united monarchy over the kingdom. In 722 BC, Assyria, which is modern day Syria, just north of Damascus, would come in and defeat the northern part of Israel. They would either kill them all or remove them all from the land. About 150 years later in 586 BC, the exact same thing would happen to Judah. At this point, all the people were out of the land. 586, really important date. The people had a land and a king. Then they had a land, no king. Now they don't have land or king for a period of about 70 years from the first invasion in 605. 538, another important date. 538 to 330 BC, my favorite time in the Old Testament. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they're all living in that, they're all living in that time period. My favorite part of the Old Testament. Uh, Persia rules. The people of Judah are allowed to go back to the land. So now they're in the land, but it's not their land. They have no king. In about 330 BC, a guy called Alexander the Great, who you may have heard of, shows up and, and the Hellenistic Greek Empire destroys the Persians and rules hundreds of provinces, basically from Greece all the way to the east of India. And they allow Israel to stay there and keep worshiping and kind of doing their own thing. No big deal. Alexander the Great dies. Eventually his empire is divided into four sections. One of them is ruled from Egypt. While Egypt is ruling the area that we know as Israel-Palestine, they told the Jews, you can do whatever you want. We don't care. Worship your God, whatever. Um, Eventually power flipped in the northern Part of the Seleucid Empire, which was located in Syria, modern-day Syria, ruled, and they said, you know, we don't like the Jews. Um, They were the first of the Hitlers. They just said, let's kill them, let's get rid of them, no worship, no temple, we we want them out. So 330 to 166, in the land, but not really their land, no king. 166 to 63, they tried to get them out of the land, off the earth, no worship at all. 63, they got a little bit of a reprieve from the land. From 63 to 30 AD, the Roman Empire comes in. And Rome says to get people to really appreciate the Roman Empire, we'll let them call their governors kings. 
So for the first time in 500 years, the people of Israel had a king. He just wasn't Israeli. He wasn't from the line of David. He, he, nobody thought he was the Messiah. When Jesus was born, you may have heard his name. He, he killed a bunch of babies. His name was King Herod. But he wasn't a king. He wasn't a king. He wasn't even Israeli. He wasn't a king. He wasn't from the line of David. Um, but Rome said, you can be a king and you do whatever you want. We'll give you money to build whatever you want. You can be a king. So for 100 years before Jesus showed up, Israel's a vassal state. They're in their land, but it's not their land. They have a king, but he's a bad king who could care less about the people. And they're beginning to lose hope in this whole land king thing that God promised them. So what do we need to learn from that? Four things, insights into these people who showed up to hear Jesus preach. First, we need to realize only 120 years of a 2100-year history had even come close to matching the promise made to Abraham and Israel. Land and a king. And of that 120 years, really only 40 of them could even be considered close to a spiritual kingdom. Last 20 years of David, first 20 years of Solomon, they looked like a spiritual kingdom that could help the whole world know who the God of Israel is. But really only 40 years of that 2,000-year history. Say, what does that mean? That means the people weren't so sure of land, king, king, kingdom, bless the world anymore. They kind of lost a little hope, but my gosh, it makes sense. It's like... Maybe you would think God didn't totally mean that. More than that, it had been 616 years since Israel lived as an independent nation in their land. Remember 586 when they got kicked out? That's the last time they had their own money stamped with Israel on their coins. This is the last time they, they were their own country in their own land. You say, how much does 616 years of oppression weigh on your back? Well, we have been in 2020. Really, some of us finally addressing the wounds of 400 years of the slave trade on the North American continent and understanding how deeply that impacts our black friends, relatives, brothers, sisters, neighbors, teammates. 400 years of a wound in the soul of black Americans because of a slave trade that that just kind of got pushed under the rug and we said we can deal with it in other ways by a lot of people. We're looking several hundred years after that ended at the fabric of a society coming apart because 400 years of oppression is hard to ignore or get over or get beyond. They had 616 and were still in the oppressed state. It wasn't like it had ended a year or two or 100 years or 200 years before. They were still living as an oppressed people. At the very, very least, there was a deep, deep wound in their soul that longed for someone to come fix what had gone wrong. More than that as we keep going. Not only 616 years since they've been a nation, but they'd been a vassal state for 568 years, which means all the good things God gave them, they had to give up to somebody else. They, They weren't a people in their land with a king, and maybe to pour a little salt in the wound when they were finally given the king. It was a vassal king. He was called king, but he had zero power to help the people of Israel. He had zero heart for God. He had zero desire to see the kingdom of Israel become a spiritual kingdom that would impact the entire world. So when Jesus shows up, honestly, when Jesus shows up, not a lot of spiritual hope. When Jesus shows up, not a lot of religious devotion. When Jesus showed up, Israel spiritually was in a state of what I call Janet Jackson Judaism. Look at somebody next to you and say Janet Jackson Judaism. For those of you who are now back, welcome back. Like, I'm I'm glad you made it through that part of of the message. One more time. Look at someone say, Janet Jackson Judaism. 
say, Christian, what in God's name are you talking about, ma'am? Um, in 1986, Michael Jackson's little sister, Janet, came out with a song, and it was called, What Have You Done For Me? Yeah, so you all listen to that devil music, too. You pray for me, I'll pray for you. Should have been listening to Petra and Striper and the boys back in the late 80s, but... But we didn't, right? We listened to Janet every now and then. What have you done for me lately? By the time Jesus showed up on the scene, here was the posture of the Jews in Israel. When they heard there's a king who has the kingdom, they were like, yeah, sure. I'll listen to him. But what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? 600 years of oppression, 100 years of this phony king. 95% of our history with promises unfulfilled. All right, God. Give it your best shot, but what have you done for me lately? Janet Jackson Judaism, or what I call American Christianity for so many people. Jesus, what have you done for me lately? I'm going to give? I don't know. Going to serve? Don't know. Going on a mission trip? Don't know. Going to get in a small group? Not sure. Going to read your Bible or come to prayer? I don't know. What have you done for me lately? I don't know. See the posture? So the crowds show up. The crowds show up and they're, they're broken. They're broken spiritually. Matter of fact, they had kind of developed these factions spiritually that took parts of the Old Testament promises that they liked. And they said, we're going to adopt these as our religion, but really they're more about us than they are God. We're going to find the things we want to do in life. We're going to find some verses that support that. We're like going to use those to live our life. You've heard of the groups, the Pharisees. They use religion for control. They said, we think this could give us... It started with... Ezra actually started this group, believe it or not. He's my guy. It started with, this is how you can control your soul. But then it became, this is how you can control your family. And then it became, this is how you can control others. And then it got really, really bad. And the Pharisees, by the time Jesus showed up, they were like, yeah, we love the religion stuff because it allows us to have an element of control over people. Sadducees, another group, they use religion for wealth and status. This was the political class. Democrats, Republicans, independents. This was the Congress, the Sanhedrin of Israel. The political class were the Sadducees. They had learned... Basically, that leadership in Israel could really be taken advantage of, especially if there was no king. They could all live like kings. So they said, we'll use religion to build wealth and status for ourselves. The Essene community, maybe you've heard about John the Baptist, one of these guys. They use religion for community. They looked at the Old Testament promises of living in a pure society and being together and serving one another and said, we love that. So they left all the cities and went and lived in the desert and said, we really embrace that part of the spiritual life at builds great community. It gives us the type of culture we're looking for in our life. And then, of course, there were the zealots. We talked about them a few weeks ago. They used religion for power. They were called by historians 2,000 years ago terrorist. You could probably call them Jewish jihadist. They were willing to kill, to usurp authority, so that Israel could be a nation state again. These were the people showing up to hear the king Talk about his kingdom. All right. What have you done for me lately? Let's hear it. 
And most of them approach Jesus that way. And here really, honestly, ultimately is, is their heart shape. The crowds were concerned with how Jesus could make external changes to their lives to help them accomplish their mission. They'd already decided what they wanted out of religion. They'd decided what they wanted out of faith. They'd decided what they wanted out of God. They'd already made a plan for how they were going to live their life. And if Jesus could help them with that, that was awesome. But it was ultimately all about them. Question you got to ask yourself is, is this you? Have you come today? Have you come to Jesus? Do you listen to Jesus, study Jesus, follow Jesus? Have you already set your course in life? You know what you're going to do. No one can tell you what to do. You've decided who you are, how you live, what makes you happy, and you're trying to figure out if you can find some verses to support that so Jesus can give you a little more comfort in how you've decided to live. If you have, you are part of the crowd. That was the crowd. They showed up saying, I already know how I'm going to do things. I already know what I think. I already, I already know the things that make me happy. However, I'm going to see if you support that in any way because that could be helpful to me. The crowds, the crowds, the crowds. One of the goals that I have in this series is for every person in our church, for all those watching online, for all those sitting outside, to really check their heart and say, is this me? Am I using Jesus to justify or to give me things that I can't have without him? Am I just using him for what I've already decided I want life to look like? Janet Jackson Judaism, American Christianity. Add Jesus to what I have. It gives me forgiveness in my past, eternity in my heaven, and doesn't impact much today. That's not biblical Christianity. Just so we know, as we move forward, that's not what it is. You say, well, what if I'm a part of the crowd? Here's the good news. Some in the crowd became disciples. Jesus called the crowds and his disciples. The good news is that most of the disciples came from the crowd. Remember, some Pharisees became followers. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, became a follower of Jesus. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee became a follower of Jesus. You say, how could that happen? Because Pharisees ultimately wanted people to honor God and his word. They just thought they could force it. When they realized they couldn't, they met the son of God who was described as the word who became flesh and they put all their faith in him and said, we can't control people spiritually, but if we give control of our life to the king spiritually, God through his word can create the change that we're looking for. So the thing they had always wanted but couldn't achieve on their own, they found in Jesus. So some of them, Nicodemus, the apostle Paul, said, yes, Jesus is the answer to what we've been searching for our entire life. Of course, some Essenes became followers. We believe John the Baptist was a part of this community that lived in the desert and studied the word and was preparing for the kingdom that was to come. You say, how could that happen? Because they wanted to live in the purity and in the service of spiritual community. But what they realized is the first spiritual friend they needed was Jesus. And the only thing that could purify their life was Jesus. So they said, the thing we've been looking for, striving for our entire life can only be found in Jesus, so let's follow him. We know, of course, that some of the zealots became followers. One of the 12 apostles was Simon the Zealot. You say, how could that be? Because what they wanted was the sinful influence of the world out of their life. They were sick of Assyria polluting their spiritual culture. They were sick of Babylon polluting their spiritual culture. They were sick of Greece polluting their spiritual culture. They were sick of Rome polluting their spiritual culture. But when they met Jesus, Jesus said, no, it's your sin in your heart polluting the spiritual culture. If you will let me deal with you, you'll be able to deal with the world. 
You'll have a lot of trouble in the world, but you'll have me too, and you're going to be okay. So what they had always wanted, they only were able to find in Jesus, who took the sin out of their life and brought the hope and peace that they'd always thought they'd get in a nation to their heart. He said, what about Sadducees? That's a great question. Because we don't read about any followers of Jesus that were Sadducees in Scripture. Say, why? Let me just let me give you some information. The Sadducees believed that hope and change came through political power and government systems. Remember, they stopped believing in the supernatural. They didn't believe in heaven and hell. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They thought God was done moving. And that the only way to effect change was through political power and government systems. And while Jesus had something for everyone else, he didn't come for that. He didn't come for political power or for government systems. As a matter of fact, when you look at the last 2,000 years, Jesus and the way of Jesus has deeply impacted every government system and political power in the world. From communism to socialism to democracy, from people still living in tribal villages in the remotest areas of the world, there is no government system or political power that can keep the way of Jesus out. But he didn't come to do that. And because they had no belief in a sovereign, supernatural, who was still spiritually moving, they thought if we don't control the politics and the government, we don't have anything. Say this phrase, God is in control. The Sadducees did not believe that. They didn't believe it. And if you find your heart so totally invested in political power and government systems that you lose faith when they don't go your way, you don't totally believe that either. Say it again. God is in control. Don't be a Sadducee. Don't believe that regardless of who's in the White House, God is on the throne. Like God is in control. There is a sovereign supernatural whose spirit is moving from communist China to democratic America to places in the rainforest that don't even know they're supposed to have government yet. The way of Jesus is moving. Say, Christian, what are you trying to say? I'm just teaching the Bible. Say, what are you implying? It's a good question. It's a good question. Maybe in this season, because the Bible's not an old book, it's an eternal book. Which means because the Bible is timeless, it's always timely. Maybe in the fall of 2020, God is saying, careful, your spirit looks a lot like a Sadducee. You're so afraid. You think all the, pol- you think all the power is in politics and all the strength is in government. God is in control. You say, how'd they make the transition? How'd they make the transition? Ultimately, here's what happened with the disciples. They were concerned with how Jesus could make internal changes instead of external changes in their lives to help him accomplish his mission. The crowds looking for external change to help with the thing they'd already decided they wanted to do. The disciples, they came to Jesus this way. I'm so broken that I don't think anything externally can help me. But if you could change my soul, you can have my life. I'm so broken. I've tried everything on my own. We've tried for power, Pharisees. Didn't work. 
We tried for community essays, didn't work. We've tried with terrorism, zealots, didn't work. We've tried with politics, it's not working. Jesus, I don't need external change. Tried it, doesn't work. I need an internal change. If you will change me internally, you can have all of me. That's what the disciples were. My hope is that in the next nine weeks, my hope is that in the next nine weeks, we have some people so concerned with internal change that they will learn the way of Jesus and live his life with his mission. You say, I want that. How do I get there? You got to go to the mountainside. You got to go to the mountainside. What is the mountainside? It's the place where we meet God with open hearts. Matthew 5 says, Jesus sat down on the mountainside and called people to him. You say, why the mountainside? For some reason, God was always working on the mountain. He met Noah on Mount Ararat after the flood and said, worship here. Start over here. He met Abraham on Mount Moriah after he had offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice and said, God, you can have all of the promise that you've given me, I give back to you. And God says, I can work with that. He declared him righteous and said, let's move forward. He met Moses on Mount Sinai and said, here's how to know me and here's how to follow me. He met David on Mount Zion and he installed him as a king over Israel who had a heart that loved God. He met Elijah on Mount Carmel and he showed the prophets of Baal there was only one real God in heaven who was still moving on earth. And now Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes called the crowds and his followers to him and said, let's sit down. Let's open our hearts and let's learn who God is so we can become like him. Now, I don't know if you know it, but that is the greatest offer any human being could ever be given. That you could learn to know God so intimately that you could become like him. I believe every heart and soul has been shaped for that. You say, why is that? Because it was the first temptation ever given to humanity. What did the devil say? He saddled up to Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, don't you want to be like God? And they said, yeah, we do. And he said, I can give you a shortcut. And he gave them a premature promise of temptation that would separate them from God. Don't you want to be like God? And they said, yeah, we do. Man, we watch him, we walk with him, we, we know him, we'd like to be so much more like him. Say, so I can give you a shortcut. God said, you're going to know me this way. And they took this way, a premature promise that now at the perfectly appointed time was fulfilled when Jesus said, sit down. I will tell you how to know God in a way that helps you become like him. All of humanity has been chasing it since the beginning. Let me tell you how it works. And he opened up his mouth and said, it's blessed to be this way. The next nine weeks, we're going to study that way so that as we live the way of Jesus, he can become king of our life. We can become his disciples. And by doing so, maybe we can show the world who he is. Do we believe our world needs more of Jesus in 2020? Amen. Then let's learn the way of Jesus. Is he your king? Are you his disciple? If not, you can choose to change that today. Would you pray with me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. All over the room, if you're watching online, if you're hanging out outside, do you know Jesus? Is he your king? Are you his disciple? If you came in this morning and the answer is no, you can change that. Let me introduce you to the king. His name's Jesus. He knows you, loves you. He can totally change your life from the inside out if you'll surrender your life to his will and it'll be the best life you'll ever live. Scripture says if you believe in your heart, this is true. You hear the call of God and you respond. Confess with your mouth. You pray that you want it to be true and you surrender your life. You'll be saved. 
you'll be changed, you'll begin to be connected to the God of the universe. If you've never done that, today by faith, which means you can't understand it all, but you're willing to believe it because your soul is telling you to. Today, open up your mouth in prayer. You don't have to pray out loud just from your heart to heaven. Open up your heart in prayer. Tell God you want to be connected to him through Jesus. Like the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, you've tried life your whole way. It's not working. So now you want to try Jesus. If that's you, just pray this prayer from your heart to heaven. It's not really the prayer or the words. It's the attitude of your heart and surrender. Say something like this, Jesus, I need you. Just pray from your heart to heaven, Jesus, I need you. Forgive my sin and my brokenness. Make me brand new. I'm willing to surrender my will for your plan for my life. So come into my heart and my life and lead me in your way. Today I commit to follow you. Lead me in the way of Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you just prayed that prayer with me, we're celebrating with you. Scripture says they're celebrating in heaven because your life has crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. In just a second, Pastor Mike will tell you how to let us know. You made a spiritual decision so we can give you some information, pray for you, pray with you, just help you as you begin to journey with Jesus. But before we end, Christians, let me talk to the Christians. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but ears are wide open, hearts are wide open. Christians, be honest. Why are you seeking King Jesus at this point in your life? Is it just for external change? You're here trying to figure out if Jesus can help you with something that you've already planned to do. You've already decided your life needs. Or are you seeking Jesus for internal change, an eternal mission? Internal change so you can help Jesus accomplish his mission in your life and in your world. If that's what you want, you're going to have to surrender to his teaching and his ways over the next nine weeks. How do you do that? You meet him on the mountainside. You open up your heart. You ask him to help you be more like Jesus. If that's your prayer, then pray that right now. Those three things from your heart to heaven. Ask God to meet you on the mountainside the next two months. Ask God to open your heart the next two months. Ask God to help you be more like Jesus the next two months. Pray that. Ask Him to meet you on the mountainside. Ask Him to open your heart. Ask Him to make you more like Jesus. God, that's our prayer. We want to walk in the ways of Jesus because we believe, like He said, that blessed are the poor in spirit. We believe blessed are those who mourn. We believe blessed are the meek. We believe blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We believe blessed are the merciful. We believe blessed are the pure in heart. We believe blessed are the peacemakers. We believe blessed are those who are persecuted because they follow Jesus. We believe blessed are people when they're insulted because of their faith. God, we believe in the way of Jesus. With our heads, it makes so much sense. With our heart, it feels right. Lord, help our actions and our footsteps and our hands in our daily life to express the actions that we believe. God, help Jesus not to be a thing that's in our head. Help him to live so deeply in our hearts that he comes out every day in our exterior life. Lord, teach us the way of Jesus. Meet us on the mountainside. Open our hearts and help us become more like you because our world needs you. We need you. We are desperately broken externally. Only an internal change will make a difference. So Jesus, meet us on the mountain. Open our hearts. 
Teach us to be like you and we will walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship with Ken and the team.